Welcome to Yourself at Work with Kristen and Daryl. Uh, we're really excited today to present our episode with Dr. Connie Quinn. Connie is a licensed clinical social worker who's been practicing since 1996, uh, the last seven years dedicated to employee-sponsored healthcare tech clients. Um, she's held faculty appointments at both Adelphi and Columbia University, is a certified sex therapist, and currently is the virtual medical director at a national primary care company after many years of state and federal service. Today, we'll be discussing common mental health challenges of tech workers, including depression, anxiety, and the imposter syndrome that often comes when perfectionists find themselves surrounded by the best and the brightest. Here's our conversation with Connie. Hope you enjoy. Connie Quinn, welcome to Yourself at Work. So nice to have you here. Uh, so you and I have known each other for for quite some time in a, in a, in a variety. I was, counting, I was counting earlier. It's like six years or so. You know, should I say that it, uh, it, it, I don't know if it feels longer or shorter than that. <laughs> um, but in a, in a variety, a variety of contexts, but I think one of the, um, you know, one of the things that, that we're really excited to talk about is just that you've had such a wide variety of experiences, both, you know, in private practice, but also then into corporate wellness. So you and I know each other very well. Um, but for our audience, it would just be great if we could uh, uh, start off with a little bit about just your background overall, and then we'll get into some of, uh, some of the rest. I'm happy to do so. First of all, thank you both for having me. Um, this is a really wonderful opportunity to talk about something that obviously I'm very passionate about. So um, I am a licensed clinical social worker. I also have a doctoral degree in social welfare. I've spent... 20 years of that clinical practice also as a um, social work educator um, at a at two New York uh, social work universities, Adelphi and Columbia, sort of super Ivy and a school of the people. So very different experiences in, in, in terms of even that part of my career. Um, it's funny when people ask me sort of how I got to be part of this mental health experience. I, I always tell this story about when I was a kid during the holidays, grew up on Long Island. My parents would take us into Manhattan to see the Christmas windows. And there was a man outside of Saks Fifth Avenue who was selling pencils in a cup with his seeing eye dog. And it was just heartbreaking to me. And I would say to myself, when I grow up, I'm going to come back and I'm going to give him $10. You know, and that was like, you know, mm. little Connie's version of the heart of a social worker. Mm. And I didn't know it at the time. And my dad would have loved for me to be a banker. I'm my mother, I'm sure would have loved for me to be a trophy wife. <laughs> um, and, you know, lo and behold, here I am. And I think it's, it's sort of a testament to that moment. And, you know, working in this field is not for the faint of heart, you know, you're constantly holding space, you're constantly um, sticking your finger in the dike, you're constantly um, just living in, in, in this, the, the soup of despair uh, with high highs and low lows. So the first, my gosh, I would say the, the first 10 years of my career were spent in juvenile corrections. 
um, working for the state of New York. And that was such an eye opener, especially from a white woman of privilege from Long Island, working in with this population and actually some, it, you know, the universe had my back because I was actually really good at it. And, and you know, it. I, I look back and I think, wow, that was pretty badass. <laughs> you know, like, how did you do that? And I just, you know, it's like, I was curious. I wanted to know more, tell me. Um, and I, I heard and saw the most amazing things and, and it was such a privilege to be able to do that work. Um, a lot of humility too. And you know, maybe we can get to some of those experiences in a bit, but so then I worked for the state in Albany for a bit, worked in probation for a little bit. And then at a certain point went to the federal system and ran the inpatient psychiatric unit at a VA hospital in Westchester that was a psychiatric hospital. Um, so, and, and to be fair, I always tell people every time I made a move, it was really important to me to work with the smartest and the funniest people I could find. And I have continued <laughs> to do that because you have to have funny if you're going to have devastation. Like, mm. The two of them need to sort of hang together. So I wound up becoming the director of an eating disorder um, treatment facility at the partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient level of care, national organization. And that's where the real trauma-informed care education piece came in. So, you know, every time I made a move, I traded up, I learned more and more and more to the point where, um, that sort of clinical experience didn't serve me any longer. And I thought, well, I'm looking for a new home. And I landed in corporate healthcare tech. And I thought, oh, this eating disorder clinic, this is really a hard job. I'm going to go to healthcare tech. That's going to be a day at the beach. I'm going to, you know, that's got to be like, well, um, <laughs> that was, you know, sort of eyes wide open. Um, again, so grateful. And, and I always say, like, I know more about tech than any social, social worker ever should. Um, you know, and I think one of the reasons why that that environment really resonated with me is because my dad was a, a, uh, a fairly prominent savings banker back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, when savings banks became no longer a thing. Um, and I was always really interested in the vertical and horizontal nature of organizations and organizational culture. Actually, that was what my dissertation was about, you know, organizational culture and ethical decision-making. So um, when I was seeing patients and they would share with me um, things about, you know, you know, organizations, you know, of a health care, health 
healthcare tech nature, I would be fascinated. So not only was I treating the clinical, I was very often having to understand and unravel the, the uh, infrastructure of what was driving a lot of the mental health issues. So, so that's sort of been the trajectory. Um, you know, when I started in healthcare tech, I was doing straight clinical work. I took a break from, um, you know, running things. I am now in a leadership position in the healthcare tech space. Um, and, you know, just in the seven years that I've been doing what I'm doing, I have seen dramatic changes in service delivery um, and supports and resources, third-party vendors that are available to companies, um, you know, that provide the level of service, you know, that I, the space that I work in, but also the diagnostic um, acuity and complexity of the patients that we're working with, um, certainly before the pandemic, but boy, you know, I don't, I'm not a science fiction person, so I never could have invented or, you know, imagined, you know, the pandemic one, but the, the level of, of intensity that has been visited on so many people that are um, receiving care and have wanted and made themselves available to receiving therapy coaching um, as a result of grief, social isolation, um, just sort of being lost. I just quickly wanted to go back to something you said before, because I, I kind of chuckled at something that probably actually needs a little bit of clarification. So, because it, it may have come off as a little bit insensitive. When you had said, um, uh, that moving from what you were doing previously into into the tech world and assuming it would essentially be a, I don't know, easy job, cushy job or something like that, right? <laughs> or assuming it would be a lower intensity. And I mean, I chuckle just because like this is something, this is something we've discussed extensively and lived a lot, right? Around how it, it is it is far from that. And so I just wanted to, one, clarify that, that it was more, I was not making light of that, but but more... I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that kind of that shift and sort of that that yeah I mean almost the you talked about a bunch of things that were really you worked in a lot of spaces that I think anybody would agree are were extremely intense right and I think that the it's probably I don't know maybe to an unfamiliar ear the idea that the and especially, obviously, in a world that's often full of privilege and things like that, but that the, the idea that the, that tech is intense, that you could even talk about it in the same arena as some of those things, I think, is pretty interesting. It, correct. I mean, you know, population to population to population, it was mind-blowing, the catastrophic anxiety. I have a cut on my leg, therefore I, I probably have to have my leg amputated. Like, I mean, 
slight exaggeration, but not too far from it. And I really, you know, I sort of consider myself, if I think about myself as a, um, as a clinician and we always get asked this during it, well, you know, what's your model of practice? So, you know, I'm very relational, sort of very attachment oriented, but you know, how do I intervene? Definitely evidence-based practices sprinkled with a little mindfulness or a lot more mindfulness than I ever thought I would need to keeping people present. But I had to legit go back to some basic CBT stuff, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment, do really hardcore, very systematic, sequential work with a lot of patients that I was very surprised about. Um, But yeah, I mean, the, the depth of depression, the depth and the breadth of depression, trauma, I thought, oh, you know what? We're all the same. We're all hurting. We're all supremely flawed. We're all supremely human. And I think it was just sort of, if I could say this without like being canceled, you know, sort of like you you make a lot of money. Stop. Mm. And and you know, sorry. Um, that's it. That was a, just a ridiculous thing, you know. We all have significant challenges, and just because you know you are fortunate to not have to worry about that piece doesn't change the fact that you were bullied in in elementary school. So you stuck your head in your books that STEM became the God send, the, the universe send for you, that you got into college, that you were able to, you know, excel and here you are. But your imposter syndrome your social isolation, you know, your absence of meaningful relationships, your struggle socially with your TL. Um, okay, fine. So you have some stock. That doesn't mean a damn thing if you don't have anything to do this weekend and, and on and on and on. So yes, I mean, smirk, smirk, but boy, did I, was I humbled. What I will say, which is very interesting, is that I expected to see more substance abuse, substance use disorder, and I did not. It was, um, I would say, if we're looking at the uh, diagnostic categories, um, did a lot of adjustment disorder, and I can I can touch upon that. That is sort of what, you know my lowest level diagnosis. But generalized anxiety disorder, persistent depression, you know, depressed more days than not, then major depression, single episode, um, you know, mild, moderate to severe, and, um, and then maybe somebody that's really chronically depressed. Um, a lot of historical trauma, um, a lot of college campus trauma, a lot of college campus sexual trauma, um, a lot of folks 
using cannabis. That sounds like so, you know, grown up using cannabis. You know, a lot of people smoking weed, you know, doing gummies, vaping, you know, all the things, people loving their mushrooms, but never to the point where I felt like this is really interfering with your Mm -hmm. quality of life. Um, I guess I'm just not that much of a prude, you know, but they're not, they're also not drinking as much. So, but really the anxiety, the depression, the adjustment disorder was predominantly reserved for, um, my observations were, you know, folks sort of new to an organization, you know, they come in all bright and shiny and like, oh, okay, well, I been here six months now and I still don't really know anyone and I don't have anything to do and I don't have anywhere to go and I can't now they you know many of them couldn't even get home during the pandemic um but you know so sort of across the board yeah, I want to go back to what you were saying about the kind of things that you're seeing in the corporate environment. And you touched about, you know, this this podcast, we, we focus on like mental health and well-being in the context of the workplace, which can either be like a technology company, a large organization. And as you were talking about that, you kind of touched on two components. So one was this sense of shared humanity, and we're all complicated, flawed human beings and having a big paycheck doesn't change that. So just the sense of like, we're all human. But then you were also touching on like the ways in which um, it's just a different set of um, individual characteristics or environmental circumstances for people in the tech industry. Like you mentioned, you know, someone that was bullied as a kid and then addressed that by studying and then they end up in tech, but they're still struggling with this early social isolation. I'm curious to talk a little bit more about that second one. Like, what are the categories of of things that that are, that you're seeing uniquely in the tech world? And I'd love any thoughts on like, what is driving that? Like, is is it driven by the environment, like the the environment that people are in today, like by the company that they're working in and the pressures and so forth, or is it more of like a selection bias, like the kind of people who ends up in these jobs? tend to have XYZ history? Like, I'd love any, any kind of observations around, around why this would be different. Yeah, and, and, and just sort of as I sort of move forward with this, these are observations. You know, this was yeah. one social worker's experience. I mean, I think it's very much a common experience of, you know, uh, at least, you know, conversations I've had with colleagues sort of around this, but these are, you know, really observations. And I imagine, you know, that that kid that I I sort of describe then becomes the salutatorian or the valedictorian or, you know, sort of high achieving because that is where, you know, the validation is going to come from. It's sort of this external um environment sort of propping them up to to do the next thing and then they sort of go and they wind up in this environment that has all of the valedictorians and all of the salutatorians all of the um i mean everything all the mock un you know kids and 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 all all of that 
so there's that. The other thing, and again, I observation that I always thought, wow, what a great job for an introvert. Right? You know, it's like me and those code <laughs> lines of code. Let me go in and clean up the code base. Let me, it's like, you know, like I don't have to, again, sweeping generalization, but I don't really have to do that much interface because this isn't going to talk back. And for the highly sensitive, um, potentially overstimulated, I'm going to throw this out there again. To, I try to stay away from a lot of jargon, but the neurodivergent, even, um, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, a great bet. But you know, that's just sort of one space. You know, then there's all of the other parts of the infrastructure that that keep the the company these companies going um you know whether it's sales or hr recruiting um but again uh that you may have many more extroverts in those spaces but you're still getting that best and brightest um type and then all they talk about is imposter syndrome mm-hmm. which and it, it's funny, I probably was asked if I knew what that was maybe 25 times in my first few months. Do, do you know what, do you know what, have you ever heard of imposter syndrome? I'm like, yes, but tell me more. <laughs> yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. So, so it sounds like from the observations, it's potentially less about the culture that's like the kind of environment in the job today. And it's more about all of the history of the kinds of people who end up in that type of job is, is, the, is the sense. Well, I, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't say, I think that they're the environment, the environments um, don't always help. You know, the way that people are, um, you know, performance evaluations, um, the intensity of all of these things that are more hurdles for folks to jump through uh, tend to just exacerbate the inherent nature of the person that winds up in the environment itself. So those sort of things sort of feed off each other and, and uh, um you know, it's a little bit of a quiet storm. Like if, you know, if you have someone listening to this podcast who's in tech, who has imposter syndrome, who's feeling anxious, like what are a handful of things you would just want people to know that someone should have told them much, much earlier uh, in their careers or lives? Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> I mean, I just love it's okay to not be okay. You know, it's as maybe overused and cliche, cliche as it is now, it's kind of okay. I mean, I've just been through a major life transition. Um, as I, you know, record this podcast from my son's basement, waiting for my new apartment to be ready. And I've had some not okay days. And that's okay. Because I have that afternoon, and I have tomorrow, and I have all of these other moments where I can decide all right, 
I'm over myself, you know, so I'm going to keep it moving. Um, you know, specifically with some of the things that I have heard, you know, over time, um, I would always say in session, okay, so what, what data points do you have to support that, that, that that's, that's grounded in, in any sort of scientific evidence? One of the things sort of working in this space is sort of, you know, I would say, okay, what are the data points? Let's do a data dump. You know, if you would write your own line of code, what, you know, what would it be? You know, so sort of using that language if they couldn't quite grasp on. But I think just more um, sort of a broad stroke of, of psychoeducation is, you know, absolutely it's okay to not be okay. There's lots of resources out there that um, really can speak to that one thing that you need to hear. You know, assess who's around you. Let go of the things that don't serve you anymore. You know, is this thing I'm about to do good for me or not so good for me? You know, and not every day is going to be an A plus plus. Not every day. You're not a, you're not going to be the valedictorian every day of your life. You know, so if you can just be good enough, um, when I do. Um, CBT, I will say to uh, folks, you know, and, and the, you know, sort of the, the uh, we want to let go of uh, limiting core beliefs and change automatic negative thoughts to something a little bit more positive. So, you know, I'll say, look, if you wake up every day and say, I, oh, God. This is a terrible day. It's already a terrible day. I can tell that sounds terrible. I'm not going to say, oh, no, it's going to be an amazing day. I just want them to say, it's okay. You know, like you'll never be that person skipping down the hall saying, woohoo, I get to, you know, do X, Y, and Z. It's like, how oh, that? It's okay. It's yeah. just okay. So, yeah. sort of just, just sort of sometimes it's just okay. Oh, yeah, I love that, and I know in my own journey, I I was the the high school valedictorian along <laughs> with probably the rest of Google, um, and I think one of the things I've learned I was not. My... <laughs> I was not. <laughs> I was the, the scrappy B plus. <laughs> one of the things I've had to learn is that like that kind of level of perfectionism is is very much a way of avoiding pain, right? Like it's like if, if yes. I if I always get the answer mm -hmm. right, then I never have to feel the pain of having been wrong or failed or whatever. And so a huge part, an ongoing huge part of my own like emotional mental growth has been exactly what you just said that like nothing's broken if you're sad or disappointed or angry or whatever, you know, negative traditionally negative right. emotion it doesn't mean something's broken. It just means you're a person and like really becoming more comfortable with those emotions and not seeing them as a sign that something is broken has, I think is a really powerful uh, point you're making. Right. Um, and, you know, the, another really wonderful thing to keep in mind is, you know, nothing is permanent. You know, yeah. it's all just fleeting. It's all, and, you know, and it, I think that that's really where, um, the mindfulness, you know, the sprinkled with mindfulness piece comes in is, 
you know, if you can just stay present, anxiety has not been known to cause the demise of anyone that I've ever worked with. And I'm trying to use gentle language. Um, just, it usually passes in about 120 seconds if you can just stay present. Um, and it's the, we get caught up in that rebound effect of, oh, but what? Oh, but that. It's like, and you know, you're flashing forward, you're looking back rather than sort of saying, oh, right now. And that was a huge, huge feature in um, when I was working in eating disorders around food was, you know, uh, folks would give a piece of French toast so much power when it's, if you really just sort of can ground and, you know, sort of stay in the moment with it, it's just a piece of bread with some syrup on it. But, you know, oh, but then, you know, it's going to go right to my hips or, oh, and, you know, when that person made fun of me and it's like, it's a piece of bread. So, um, so I, you know, sort of, that's where the mindfulness psychoeducation can be really, really helpful. Just, just sit with your feelings. They're not going to hurt you. So we had this, this sort of evolution of how we think about, um, you know, not only talking about mental health in society, but talking about mental health in the workplace and things like that. And we had this sort of big arc around over the last probably, say, 15 years around the sort of taboo into significant investment, put a kind of put shine a light on it, that sort of thing, especially in the tech world. I'm not sure about as much about other industries. And now I think, I don't know, I see little, little hints of, I don't want to necessarily say pullback as much, but I think that there was a huge focus, obviously during the pandemic where so many, everybody was struggling and there was a lot of corporate investment. Um, and I think that there's kind of now maybe a fork in the road that I think some organizations are struggling with, companies are struggling with, right? Where it's like, that's an ex perhaps an expensive benefit. It's an, oh, how many, you know, whether it's um, mental health clinicians or even coaches or things like that, like how much are we investing in this? Then I think that there's kind of this, there's a thought of, you know, okay, well, we, we still care. It's important to our employees. It's important for the well-being of the organization, but kind of maybe what's the, you know, what's the bare minimum that we can get away with or whatever. Like, I think a lot of these kind of conversations are happening. I'm just, I'm wondering what you think about where do you draw the line between corporate responsibility um, and then sort of, you know, it's corporate responsibility, perhaps then, I don't want to say clinician responsibility, but something in there and then sort of personal responsibility. Um, you know, I, I think we can take that that in many, many directions, but I think I'm really just curious about, you know, as a say that you're making these decisions in a in a big company, like, we ought to really be doing at least X. And actually if we do Y on top of that, it's really, really good, blah, blah, blah. Cause I think, and I've mentioned this been in other episodes about different things, but like, I think it's gotten really easy to figure out how much good programs cost. I yeah. don't think we're necessarily as good at saying how much value do we get for the dollars that we spend? Cause it becomes very kind of, it's a softer thing to measure or it's just really difficult to measure. So anyway, anything on that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I think one of the most important things is that these types of initiatives, whatever it is that employ, uh, employers put in place, are, are not, re, not reactive to an event per se. Now, mm. obviously, if something happens, employers want to let their employees know, we care, we hear you, we see you. But, you know, this sort of ad hoc thing doesn't provide a really sound infrastructure for honoring the fact that our mental health is of a, you know, Daryl, you and I talked about this, of, is of a public health crisis. I have this really great slide um, that is just five little kids, like six-year-olds, sitting all together on the grass. And one in five, as an adult, will have a diagnosable mental health condition. And it's just very, very powerful. 20% um, of the population has a, a diagnosable mental health concern. It is, uh, you know, a portion of that obviously has seriously um, uh, has serious and persistent mental health issues. Um, so, so we know this. The Center for Disease Control, the National Alliance of the Mentally Ill, the National Institute for Mental Health, the National Institute of Health, all have data that says nationally, globally, this is what this is what is happening. Um, I highly advise. Um, a book, and I, and I will get to your question, uh, Noonday Demons by Andrew Solomon. It's now in a 20th or 25th anniversary edition. It was, and I had already been a social worker for a bunch of years working in corrections and wasn't really dealing with like hardcore clinical stuff. Andrew Solomon admittedly suffers from depression or struggles with depression. And he goes around, he gets a grant and he goes around the world and he, and he experiences depression treatments while he writes these beautiful standalone chapters. So anyone that wants to know the state of affairs, you know, should read that book with regard to depression. I think it's just like, it's a must read. That said, we know this. We, we have the data at our fingertips. We have the PowerPoints. Um, so employers should, you cannot ask, hey, are you one of those 20%? We need to build that in as if, because the data says that is a thing. So how do you support these people that will come in with mental health concerns in a workplace that, um, is not allowed to discriminate against this, these mental health concerns. So it's an, again, I'm just one social worker out there screaming from the rooftops for the last almost 30 years, but like, it's an overhaul. It's a, it's a corporate overhaul. Um, I have seen organizations do what I thought was actually a really great job. I've, had the privilege of being on 
panels where people receiving treatment spoke to other people you know openly about their struggles moderated by um you know somebody who openly speaks about their their mental health issues in the workplace um I had tears in my eyes when I got to be the expert on that panel because that does not happen. Um, and, you know, sort of it was like a hallelujah moment for me. But I, I do feel like you, you have the data that says, okay, we have this floating around. There are these people that will come to work for us. Um, what might they need? I mean, I think that that's a, a larger question that if you honor that, then you get to build this. Um, I, the other thing is- It's looking, really quick, are you saying, are you saying that that actually, it's, are you saying that it's less about, like if you're, are you, let's say I, I'm CEO of blah, 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 and, and I say, hey, tell me what I ought to do. Are you saying, actually, it's not about here, put these three programs in place or hire these three companies or whatever. Are you saying it's actually about, you need to accept that you've got the one in five that are going to come in, honor that, believe it. That's once you do that. Once you do it writes itself or. Well, the story has not been, yet been written. So, but I'm, I'm saying, you know, if once you, once you honor that, the, the, you know, the, the numbers don't lie, you know, yeah. like, I think no matter where you sit in a continuum, you know, those numbers don't lie, then you can start to build out. Um, Cause I think, I'm not saying what has come or what is in place now isn't working. What I'm saying is you get to get better at what folks are already doing. I think some people mm -hmm. are doing a much better job than others. I've been super privileged to see, see it up close and personal, um, I feel like, yeah, I mean, psychological first aid, peer-to-peer, -peer, wellness centers, um, uh, guest speakers, talks, you know, all of those things that I've seen be super inclusive, um, but there has, to, there has to be some connection between we're doing these things. We're doing these things because we know this exists, and 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 how do we um, how do we start to normalize it? You know. So a lot of what you mentioned just now was around you know reducing the stigma and having conversations and having the resources available, having you know providing for mental health support. Um, which I think those are in the vein of like helping each individual um, work through their own internal mental health. Do you think there's also things that are needed from the lens of the company, like how, how the actual work is done at the company? Mm -hmm. Yes, I feel, I mean, what I think is really unique and Daryl, you and I have talked about this is that tech as a thing that was sort of just landed, <laughs> you know, uh, in the last 20 years, sort of grew, in, grew into its 
menopause just by virtue of, you know, time, um, but sort of reached, how do I say this? Like, uh, my observation sort of looking in was that it's uh, like, it, uh, there was a lot of ad hoc and we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to mm-hmm. do this. And then you've got these elaborate performance evaluations that um, any provider that might sit with, you know, a patient would see the level of stress. And just when they decompressed, it rolled around again. And, um, you know, sort of shame about not wanting to be a manager if you're an individual contributor and like so many different things that I feel like sort of just tech in general didn't have an opportunity to step back and say, hey, we should figure out if this is actually working for people. (laughs) Um, I mean, you've talked about this before. I I think that what's come up a couple of times in the conversation is the the examples that you use are, you you use those examples even with the small end count because it's so prevalent even in the small end count, right? When you talk about perf, things like, you know, perf in big tech are these like, they feel like these, make or break kind of moments and it keeps rolling, yeah. right? And I don't think anybody when these companies were started was like, let's create a process that 150,000 people are like intensely either terrified of or think their whole life rides on it. And we're gonna do that over and over forever. No one intended to build the process that way, but by the time the process was then built and implemented, now you have this consequence that's coming out the other end of it and it becomes it's so entrenched, right? And whether it's things like that, manager culture, as you mentioned, you know, all of these things, yeah. Yeah, um, and and it was it was always very interesting to me. So sort of what, you know, the, the, the salve or the antidote for that would be making sure, again, observation, making sure all the frozen yogurt machines were working so that people could sort of, soothe themselves Mm. or you know what are we going to put in the micro kitchens what are we going to do um as a a perk because we're doing this other thing how about Mm. let's just look at this other thing and find something that's a little bit more you know like there there it was always there was this like parallel process of user experience you know putting green scooter frozen yogurt april october people are losing their minds with perf and sobbing in the bathroom because it's just, you know, unsustainable. There's a show on Netflix, which I highly recommend called something about uh, the blue zone. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, how do people live longer and well? And they talk about, you know, one of the predominant psychosocial variables variables being community and connection mm-hmm. and feeling, you know, uh, they, they were in Okinawa and there was this woman playing cornhole with her grandchildren at 101. And I, you know, it, it, it is about this, you know, this 
coming together and having people to talk to and having shared experiences. And I think that that, you know, certainly with some of, you know, my experience with new employees feeling lost, moving to a new city, not knowing anyone, making sure, I, I think that is as important as, you know, honoring mental health day for somebody, you know, uh, you know, I'm not going to take PTO. I'm taking this as a mental health. I'm going to take it as one of my three mental mm -hmm. health days that come out of my bucket of days off. We get bereavement days. We should be getting mm -hmm. mental health days. And we should be able to say those things. Um, this has been so touching. Thank you so much to for allowing me to be part of that. I do want to plug, it is Suicide Awareness Prevention Month. and you know, if you know someone or love someone who is struggling, 988 is available to call um, and 911, go to your local emergency room. Um, so Connie, thank you so much for the conversation. I really enjoyed um, talking with you and for learning sure. from you. Um, if people listening want to, to reach out or learn more about your work, where can they find you? Um, I am uh, easily found on LinkedIn. That's probably the, the most efficient place to reach out and i um, happy to hear from anyone that uh, wants to connect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This is great.